good afternoon to you all. Let me add my welcome to that of my brother, uh, Pastor Lawton. It's wonderful to see you all today, and I wonder, wonderful to be able to share God's Word with you. I'd like to do so, uh, as is indicated in your bulletins from Psalm 111. So I'd invite you to turn there with me as we look at God's Word together. Uh, this is kind of a companion psalm uh, to Psalm 112, the one that comes right after it. Lots of parallels between the two, and I'll talk about the reason for that uh, as we go on. But let's hear now the word of our Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, greater the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, wisdom is one of those elusive virtues. If you seek after wisdom, uh, whether that's through academic inquiry or seeking experience out in the world, uh, you're likely to miss wisdom. But if you, like many others, seek the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then you will find him, namely Christ, and along with him, you'll also have wisdom. Michael Faraday was a scientist in Victorian England who was known for his enthusiastic science lectures, and he was one who pursued wisdom indirectly through pursuing Jesus Christ. He saw no conflict at all between science and faith. In fact, he'd say that one actually fueled his passion for the other. And his faith was always implicit in his science lectures. He wouldn't exactly preach in his lectures, but his faith in the Lord Jesus always came through. And he never lost a sense of wonder at the beautiful world that God fashioned out of nothing that would always come through in small ways. For example, Faraday once gave Prince Albert a private lecture in 1849 on the wonders of magnetism. And here's what Faraday said. What its great purpose is, meaning magnetism, seems to be looming in the distance before us. And I cannot doubt that a glorious discovery in natural knowledge and of the wisdom and power of God in the creation is awaiting our age. Well, Faraday loved to read two books, if you will, the book of God's world and the book of God's word. 
and he saw no contradiction between the two. We would call those natural revelation on the one hand and special revelation on the other. And any apparent contradictions between the two, he said, were either errors in science or errors in biblical interpretation or both. But Faraday said, if you really want to wake up to the reality of God's existence and power, then go investigate the natural world. Go take a walk in the country in the autumn. Go out in the country and look at the stars on the night sky and see how wondrous they are. Go look in a microscope and investigate the microcosm. But he said, if you really want to know his saving love in Jesus Christ, then you have to go to his word. So natural revelation on the one hand, special revelation on the other hand. But he said both gave him a healthy fear of God, a fear for God that led him on the path of wisdom, led him to take those first steps in his lifelong quest to attain wisdom. And he wasn't the only one by far. Bry, Kepler, Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, I could go on and on about scientists who had a strong faith in Christ and a robust desire to study his creation on the other. In fact, verse two of this psalm is etched on the wooden door at Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, England to this day, I believe, at least it has been, if it hasn't been canceled by this point. But at that wonderful laboratory, lots of scientific breakthroughs have been made over the years. And it says, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. But you and I can hear the objections of a modern day scientist, can't we? Even as we hear those words. You can't mix faith with science, right? You gotta check your faith at the door or you gotta at least go this far with your science and no further. They say science is based on reason. Religion is based on faith. But really that's a false dichotomy and it's one that would be quite bizarre to most of history's scientists. Most of the great scientists of history saw faith and science as mutually informing each other, not in any way contradictory. And that thinking goes back not just centuries but millennia to the time of Solomon and the time of the psalmist. Solomon, you'll remember, was an avid student of the natural world. He was enthralled with the world that God made. And he also wrote, just like the psalmist did, great are the works of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So being a student both of God's word and of God's world, of natural revelation and of special revelation, will lead us to study the Lord's praise, the Lord's works, and the Lord's salvation. So those are the three headings I'd like to touch on briefly this afternoon. First of all, the Lord's praise, the Lord's praise. See this in the first few verses of this Psalm. The psalmist is so captivated by the works of the Lord, both in his word and in his world, that he studies them. He delights to study them. Now, the word study to my four teenagers is a bad word. They would rather do anything else than study. But the psalmist has found something 
that completely enthralls him and that engages his whole person. And so he delights to study the works of the Lord. Verse two, in fact, they inspire him to lead the congregation in passionate worship as we see in verse one. That wonderful word in Hebrew, hallelujah, that says so much in one word. Praise the Lord for he is worthy of praise. And so the psalmist encourages the people in the congregation as they are enthralled by the works of God to praise the Lord. And then very crucially, he adds this, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. See, he does what he tells them to do. He doesn't expect the congregation to do something that he himself is not fully engaged in. He leads by example, in other words. Now, I'm trying my best to do this as a dad. Michelle and I pray for our children daily. We try to teach them the principles of God's word and family devotionals. But finally, we try to demonstrate by example the kinds of behaviors we expect of them. And if our actions don't line up with what we're trying to inculcate in our children, then we're wasting our time. We're probably doing more harm than we are good. And so when we mess up, and my wife, I'll confess, is much better at this than I am, we try to apologize and say, I messed up. Mom and dad need grace just like you do. And we are sinners also. And we do this very, very imperfectly. But this is what the psalmist is trying to do for the congregation here. The psalmist leads the people in worship, and he's setting the pace for them by worshiping the Lord with all his heart. So there's nothing lukewarm about this worship of the psalmist, verse one. There's nothing half-hearted about it. He's not going through the motions by any stretch. So not only is he saying, you need to worship, he's saying, I am worshiping with all my heart and here's how to do it. He's demonstrating it for them. So he shows them that worship is both personal, it's something that we do and we feel and it engages our heart, And so it's personal and internal, but it's also corporate. It involves not just me and Jesus, but me, Jesus, and all my brothers and sisters in Christ. It involves the whole family of faith. And his worship is not perfunctory. It's not dry. It's not cold. He's not going through the motions. But it's far from a shallow emotionalism, too. It's not about the psalmist trying to generate warm, fuzzy feelings in his heart and call that a quote-unquote worship experience. And he reminds us not to confuse the object of worship with its byproduct. Worship is not an end, of course. It is a means to an end of ascribing worth to God, of, of giving him the praise and worship and adoration that he is due because of his holy character and because of his marvelous works. So it's not worship itself that is the goal, and this is something our culture has all messed up. It's the object of worship that is the goal. We serve a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is worthy of our praise, even if he had not done any of the marvelous works that he had done, simply because of who he is. Somebody famously approached Pastor Francis Chan after a worship service and told him, 
you know, pastor, I really just didn't enjoy worship today. And Francis Chan famously responded, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. (laughs) And he makes a great point. Worship in no way is about us and the kinds of heart feelings that we may have. That's a byproduct, but that is not the point of the worship. The point of the worship is to ascribe worth to God who alone is worthy of it. So if we seek those spine tingling moments, those goosebump moments, goosebumps on our arms, we'll miss the kind of worship the psalmist is talking about. We'll miss the kind of worship that we were made for, that we were wired for. But if we seek to worship Christ as he is revealed to us in the scriptures, then we will know and experience the kind of worship the psalmist tells us about. So it makes all the difference in the world what we worship. Worship itself is not the point. So what is it that we ascribe ultimate worth to? That is what we worship, whether that is almighty God or whether that is athletics or whether that is pleasure or whether that is entertainment or whether that is ourselves. We are ascribing something ultimate worth. And Jesus tells us, as he quotes the Old Testament, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So worship of the living God, the psalmist shows us here, demonstrates for us here, is meant to engage the whole person. It's not just something that we do out of sheer habit. It's something that should captivate us. Love the Lord your God with what? with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So what is our proper response as we read both the book of God's world and the book of God's word? I love this hymn that we just sang. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pure poetry and pure biblical truth. So what should we be led to as we study the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of God's world and as we dig deep into God's word? We should be moved to worship with our whole heart and our whole being, the author of both. Because he is the author of both. And that's the reason that we were made, to do just that. Now, we are Reformed Presbyterians after all. We're not known exactly for wearing our emotions on our sleeves. And I know we're not all Reformed Presbyterians in the room. But our emotions still should run deep and they should be profound emotions. Sometimes in worship, I look around the room And I see that the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs brings people to tears and visibly moves people. And that is a great evidence that the Lord is at work. It's a beautiful thing when worshiping Almighty God moves our emotions. I think of Hannah in the Old Testament, Samuel's mother. She prayed in the temple and asked the Lord, begged the Lord for a son and poured out her heart to him. And she was actually thought to be drunk. She was so captivated with praising God. I think of David entering Jerusalem before the ark, dancing before the Lord with all his might. And to the chagrin of 
Michal, who was not impressed with that at all. But David was captivated with deep, profound emotion and worship. Now, this is not just to make us feel good. Again, worship is internal, but worship, worship is not merely internal. Discovering God's truth in his world and in his word doesn't just move us to internal nice feelings. It's also external. And so that's what the psalmist is doing. This worship of Almighty God is, is spilling out of him in such a way that captivates the entire community of faith. So he does it out in the congregation. And we remember that we are commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to come together regularly to encourage one another in worship. I need to see how the Lord is working in your life. You need to see how the Lord is working in my life. There's something that happens in corporate worship that is irreplaceable. Sure, worship can be done anywhere. Can you worship God out on the lake or in the woods? Absolutely, but not in place of what we're commanded to do, and that is to worship God corporately as a family of faith. So as we do that, we delight together in God's works of creation and providence and redemption. So the Lord's praise. Secondly, the Lord's works. You'll see as you go down this beautiful psalm that the word works or synonyms for works appears again and again. And we're being reminded there that the Lord is worthy of our praise for who he is and for what he's done. So when we're together in corporate worship, we remind one another of the Lord's faithfulness to us in his works. Verse four says he causes them to be remembered. He causes his works to be remembered. God does not want us to forget his marvelous works in history and in our own lives. And we're rarely tempted to reject God outright. But I don't know about you, I am daily tempted to forget the Lord's faithfulness in what he's done in the past, and therefore what I can expect him to do in the future. We're always tempted to forget, and God knows that, and so he causes us through various ways to remember his goodness and his works, because that forgetfulness has always plagued the people of God, so he reminds us. There's a reason that the Lord commands his preachers of the gospel to preach the whole counsel of God and to do so on a regular basis because how quickly we forget. We need to be reminded of every part of God's revelation to us. And there's a reason from week to week that our worship liturgy is predictable and the same. We need to be reminded of the importance of praising God, of confessing our sins together, of hearing assurances of pardon, of remembering that uh, when it comes time for the offering, it's not just a matter of of keeping the lights on, it's also something that is commanded as part of worship to return to the Lord a portion of what he has graciously given to us. And so we need to remember what the Lord has done and what he is doing in our lives. If you're regularly reading scripture yourself, you'll be reminded constantly that grace comes before law. That before the Lord gives his 10 commandments to his people, 
He first causes them to remember what he has done in freeing them from slavery in Egypt. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. And so remembering the grace of God always precedes heart obedience. We're never commanded to do anything in scripture that we're not first given a gospel reason to do. In the epistles, the gospel indicatives always come before the gospel imperatives. Because if we forget God's grace, we're left with joyless, rigid legalism. And if we forget God's commands, we're left with a sort of loosey-goosey antinomianism. So we need to be regularly reminded of both. The Exodus is an event in scripture that the Lord will not let his people forget. He's always reminding them that he has freed them from slavery, that they are no longer slaves. They're now his children. That's their new identity. And he gives them marvelous ways to remember. He establishes the Passover feast to remind them on a yearly basis, this is what I've done for you. Don't forget He causes his people to remember. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we do regularly, we remember that it is a fulfillment of the Passover feast, that Christ is our Passover. And Jesus has said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this so you won't forget what I've done for you. We also need to remember our past Ebenezer's, if you will, There's markers that we erect in our lives that remind us, thus far the Lord has helped me. Why is that? Well, because they help us remember the Lord's immutability. That the Lord not just doesn't change, but cannot change. And we think, I thought there was nothing that God can't do. Well, think about it. If God is perfect, then if he changes, he will be less than perfect. So we remember that if God has treated his people a certain way in the past, he is always the same. He cannot change. He cannot be less than he was. He will always be reliable and faithful and true to his people. If he's been faithful to us in the past, then the gospel logic is that he will continue to be faithful to us in the future. So do not forget is a great word to remember. And it's a common thread that we see again and again in scripture. Do not forget what the Lord has done for you. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. Remember his goodness. So he causes us to remember, verse four, when we do what? When we make diligent use of the means of grace. If we wanna hear God speaking to us about what's true, in a world that's captivated with lies, open our Bibles, hear the promises of God again, remember what he's done for us. But finally, the Lord's salvation. When we study the word and the world of God, we are led to praise him, we're led to study his works, and finally, we study the Lord's salvation. What we most need to remember about what God has done is his greatest work. There is his work of creation, which is marvelous. There's his work of providence, by which he works all things out in conformity to his perfect will. And finally, ultimately, there's his work of redemption, the work of deliverance. We were once enslaved to our sins, as Scotty demonstrated to the children 
on Sunday night. He came out with these chains on his wrists and they were rubber chains or plastic, but they looked quite real and the children seemed to think they were real. And Scotty's point in that children's sermon is that Christ, who is our great and faithful high priest, our redeemer, paid the price with his own blood to set us free. And when he said that, he broke the chains and the children said, and they'll never forget that image. There was once a time when we were each enslaved to our sins. We could not do anything but sin. And there was a marvelous moment in which the redemption purchased by Christ with his blood on the cross was applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit and those chains were broken. We are no longer chained to our sin. We have died to sin, Paul tells us in Romans. How can we live in it any longer? And so we are set free and do do not have to live under the tyranny of sin anymore. So this is the ultimate work of God that we're moved to look at in this psalm. As we're told about redemption, redemption is a great marketplace word. Redemption of a slave meant that slave was found in a marketplace, purchased out of ownership to its original owner, and now became the ownership of another. And so Christ purchases us out of slavery, and we become his forever. And it's a beautiful picture that the psalmist points for us here. So he points us ahead to that wonderful work of redemption through our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Passover. The psalmist also talks about the one who is gracious and compassionate. And there's no clearer example of God's wonderful grace and compassion than the Lord Jesus, who in the Gospels is shown to us as the one who is the image of the invisible God. We're told that he looked upon the crowds with compassion because they seemed to be like sheep without a shepherd. They needed a great shepherd. They needed someone to lead them beside the still waters. And Jesus Christ himself was the fulfillment of that. So there's no clearer picture than that. So go to Christ. He does not condemn you. He he looks at you with eyes of compassion. I love that wonderful song. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And there's a wonderful refrain. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. Beautiful, warm picture of the Lord beckoning us as we are, bruised, battered, beat up by the fall, coming as we are to him. But when we do that, we will certainly not leave as we are. We will be profoundly changed by his grace. And so this is the beginning of wisdom, the psalmist says. We might hear that phrase, the beginning of wisdom, and we might think, okay, well, fear leads us to the Lord initially. And then once we are converted and become Christians, then fear has served its purpose. And we can kind of throw fear out the window and it has no more purpose in our lives. But that word translated fear, or actually the word translated beginning, the beginning of wisdom is also translated chief or essential or most important. So fear, we're being told, is not only the beginning of wisdom, it is the chief part of wisdom. It is the essential part 
of wisdom. In other words, a proper fear of God, a reverence and awe of God is valued not just at the beginning of our Christian pilgrimage, but every step of the way. Not only does it get us started on the quest for wisdom, it gets us all the way there. This is reflected in Psalm 130, where the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. So fear has a proper place even after we've been forgiven. In fact, there's a special kind of fear and awe and reverence for God that comes to us as Christians, recognizing anew his ultimate holiness, but also his great love for us. So that phrase, fear of God, can be misunderstood. It doesn't mean the kind of fear that cowers in God's sight. It doesn't mean the kind of fear that may make us run and hide from him like Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's not a dread of God's judgment. Those are the kinds of fear that perfect love does cast out. But there's another kind of fear that perfect love really ushers in, in a way. It's a holy reverence. It's an awe of God. It's a right appraisal of his incomparable worth. It's what Jonathan Edwards calls a delight in God above everything else. There is a kind of slavish fear that inhibits us, but the fear of God really stirs us up. It animates us, it motivates us, it pushes us on. It's a delight in his presence and it's a kind of respect that a child has for his father. When I was a kid, for example, my friends from time to time would try to entice me into mischief and when I didn't go along with it, they would tease me and they say, are you scared of what your dad's gonna do to you? And I said, you better believe I am. But then as a young adult, you know, temptation doesn't go away, does it? It just takes different forms. And when my friends tried to entice me to come and get in trouble with them, I said, no, I don't think I'll do that. And they would tease me and say, so you're scared of what your old man will do to you, right? And I thought, no, I'm really more afraid of what my actions might do to him. And that's kind of the way it is with God. We're not afraid that uh, our sins and shortcomings will keep us from being his children for eternity, but we are also afraid of disappointing him, of hurting him, of, of doing that that is incongruous with our profession of faith. So this is what Job had in mind when he said that the fear of the Lord caused him to shun evil. And is it not what motivated Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, uh, when no one else would have known about his interactions with her? He said, no, how can, I, how can I sin against the Lord by doing this? He would not do uh, that which sinned against God. So all the Old Testament heroes of faith had this fear and this reverence and this awe of God that motivated all of their actions and all their worship. They feared the Lord in the proper sense of that term. And how did they show that fear of the Lord? Well, the psalmist gives us the answer here. All who do his works have understanding or have wisdom. How do we show that the fear of God is in us? 
by delighting to do the works of God, by obedience, by faithfulness to him. As Charles Spurgeon put it, practical godliness is really the test of wisdom. Men may know and be very orthodox. They may talk and be very eloquent. They may speculate and be very profound. But the best proof of their spiritual intelligence, i.e. their wisdom, must be found in their actually doing the will of God. Or we can hear it from Jesus himself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the fear of the Lord we're shown in this psalm is the key to unlocking a world of wisdom. And that world of wisdom is off limits to the person who says in his heart, there is no God. That person is called in scripture a fool. No matter how intelligent they may be, no matter how learned they may be, if they deny the reality of God, they look at the wonderful creation he he made and still deny that he is there, then scripture calls them a fool. God calls them a fool. So faith is a, a remarkable lens that brings the world that he made into proper focus so that we can understand it better. C.S. Lewis famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not just because I see it, but because by it, I see everything. So don't believe those who say that you have to choose between science and faith. That is a very false dichotomy because both science and faith are seeking truth. We live in an ordered universe that we are capable of understanding to a degree. Whether we look at the the macrocosm, we look up at the heavens and see the planets and the stars and the universe, or we look at the microcosm and see quarks and neutrinos and so forth. What we see in both places is incredible order and precision and regularity. And the deeper we look into God's world, the more laws we see at work, which of course imply a lawgiver. We don't see the randomness that we'd expect if we really did emerge from chaos or from primordial soup or chance. We see precision and we see order. And that order makes new scientific discoveries understandable, which is what we'd expect if we're made in the image of a God of order. So true science will always point us to God and not away from God. Copernicus studied the movements of the planets back in 1543, and what he discovered was very predictable regularity. And he said to that, of course it does. It's what we'd expect from a faithful, loving creator. Galileo, in the same way, believed God was personally responsible for the regularity and the activity of the planets and celestial bodies. Johannes Kepler considered science our ways of thinking God's thoughts after him. So we see the mind of God lying behind the beautiful order of the world that he made. And he made us with the capacity to grasp something of that order. Not in its fullness, but we can grasp something of it because he's a God of order. And he moved us to worship him as a creator of it. And not only to worship him, but also to subdue that ordered creation, to have dominion over it. 
And the fall has hindered our ability to do that, what we call the noetic effects of the fall. It affects our thinking. It messes up our thought patterns. But that's where Christ comes in, and that's what led the Apostle Paul, as he's preaching the gospel, to say, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so to seek after wisdom by the world's standards, it's probably to miss it. But to seek after Christ with all our hearts, who is the embodiment, the epitome of all wisdom and knowledge, is to find Christ and with him all the wisdom that we need thrown in for good measure. Let's pray to God. Lord, we indeed do praise you. You are worthy of it. We give thanks to you with our whole heart, not just in our own quietness of our uh, isolation, but in the company of the upright in the congregation. Truly, your works are great, and we delight in studying all your works. Your works are full of splendor and majesty. Your righteousness endures forever. Thank you that you have caused your wondrous works to be remembered. You give us ways to recall what you have done for us. And we remember and we are encouraged to trust you in the future. You are truly gracious and merciful. You provide food for those who fear you. You did it with your ancient people in the wilderness by giving them manna. You have given to us the true bread from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have remembered your covenant forever. Lord, you have shown your people the power of your works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. Your works are faithful and just. We give you praise. Lord, the fear of you, the right fear and reverence in all of you is the beginning of our quest for wisdom in this life. We thank you for the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In his name we pray. Amen.